Hi there, it's Mark from Third Shot Sports, and you're listening to Pickleball Problems. Pickleball Problems is the show where we talk all things pickleball, technique, tactics, equipment, and etiquette. I'm your host, Mark Renison, and this is a special edition of our podcast where I'm reflecting a little bit on what I saw at the 2018 USAPA Nationals in Indian Wells, California. I just got back from there after being there for nearly two weeks, watching players of all levels play, singles and doubles and mixed doubles. The kids were out there, the not-so-kid-aged people were out there, and uh, it was a really great time. And uh, I saw tons of good things, got a lot of video that we're going to be releasing over the next uh, several months at thirdshotsports.com. But I want to take this as an opportunity to tell you about some of the things that really sort of stood out for me uh, during the Nationals. So let's get to it. One of the things that was really notable to me was, especially when watching the pros play, the top players, the 5-0 men, the 5-0 women, was uh, the frequency of lobbing. So traditional wisdom and something I've actually talked about a fair bit is that the lob is an incredibly risky shot, and uh, it's risky for a couple reasons. A lob, of course, is when you hit the ball high over your opponent or hoping to get it over your opponent so that they can't reach it. If you hit it well, it forces them to turn around and run and chase the ball, and it's a very difficult shot to uh, return if you're successful at beating your opponent, meaning they can't hit it out of the air. But here's the thing, the lob is incredibly risky, because if you lob over your opponents and you hit that ball a bit too far, well, it goes out and you lose. And if you don't hit that ball far enough or high enough, then that gives your opponents a high ball, a high ball that's traveling slowly. And high balls that travel slowly are balls that they can usually smash. And so it's incredibly risky when you lob, because if you underhit it a little bit, you're in trouble. And if you overhit it, you lose. But one of the things I noticed was that when I was watching the 5 O's playing is that we saw more lobbing than I was used to. Now, these are very specific kinds of lobs. They were not third shot lobs. So often when I'm working with novice or beginning or even intermediate players and their opponents return the serve and they come running up to the net. Uh, these kinds of players will often think, I know what to do. There's two people up at the net. I'm back at the baseline. I'm going to lob it over them. We saw zero third shot lobs from the pros, but we saw lobbing at a very specific time. And that was typically when all four players were up near the net, up near the non-volley zone, and very often engaged in sort of a protracted dinking rally. So most of the lobs I saw from the pros weren't hit on the first, certainly the first three shots or the fourth or the fifth or sixth or seventh. The lobs were typically after long exchanges, long exchanges that mostly included dinks, right? Slow, low balls, forcing an upward hit from your opponent, or even after an exchange of a few um, faster balls, some reflex volleys at the net. And so why is this? Why would we see the pros, yes, lobbing? We know why you like to lob, if you can get it out of your opponent's reach can cause some trouble. But why after these long protracted rallies? Well, here's what I think. I think what was happening is that players would get into these long protracted rallies, hitting these dinks cross quarter down the line or over the middle, and not lulling their opponents to sleep because the pros don't fall asleep, but really sort of uh, establishing a pattern, establishing the kind of feeling or the pattern that I'm going to get into one of these long dinking exchanges with you. That's sort of my happy place. And I think what they would start to do is uh, with each other is that 
they would get into these long dinking rallies. And then when they would lob, they were really good at disguising it, right? So a lob is less effective if your opponent knows that it's coming. And so one thing pros are really good at doing is setting up in a consistent way, preparing their bottle, <laughs> their bottle, preparing their paddle and their body in a consistent way, making it look like they were going to play another dink. I mean, after all, if they've hit five or six or 10 dinks in a row, the opponents start to see that. And then if at the last second, you can accelerate just a little bit more when you lift that ball up and, uh, and catch them off guard, then that half second, or probably less, that split second where the opponent was expecting a slower ball, was expecting a dink, turns out to be a lob, that split second could be enough to, uh, to, to have them having their momentum going forward or sideways rather than back to retrieve it. So that was one of the things that was um, really sort of stood out for me. And perhaps of all the ones that stood out, there was one in the uh, men's open gold medal match. Uh, Kyle Yates was playing with Ben Johns against Dave Weinbach and Matt Wright. And Kyle was on the right side of his court and Matt Wright was on the left side of his court. Matt Wright, of course, is a very tall player, moves well, has a great overhead. And uh, Weinbach and Wright had match point. And after a long protracted rally... Uh, Kyle got pulled out wide on the forehand side and down match point played a lob over the tallest player on the court and uh, managed to beat Wright with the lob. Um, and then he missed the shot afterwards. So a gutsy play from Yates and uh, it paid off. But I think to me that was indicative of something that we're seeing a little bit more uh, in the pro game overall is players using lobs, but at that very specific time after long protracted dinking exchanges. You don't have to be that close to it. I hear that you are a big sister now. Is that true? Yeah. What kinds of things do you think that you have to teach your brother how to do? Um, swim and jump off the side because I can jump off the side now. He has to learn how to run and skip. How to do cartwheels. He has to learn how to cook food with his bed. Hey, do you think you can teach him how to play pickleball? Not everyone can be a naturally amazing pickleball coach. That's why we created Pickleball Coaching International, the world's best online resource for pickleball instructors and coaches. And if you use the promo code PROBLEMS at the checkout, you'll save $10. So head over to pickleballcoachinginternational.com. Pickleball Coaching International. We make good pickleball coaches even better. See you later, alligator. second thing that stood out to me at the Nationals was the different kinds of advanced movement patterns that we saw from the players. And yes, certainly from the pro players, but even from some of the sort of higher intermediate, uh, like let's say the 4-0 players, we saw some interesting movement patterns. And what do I mean by movement? Well, what I'm not talking about so much is, uh, you know, how do you move to a ball when your opponent plays a third shot drop out wide, right? You use shuffle steps or whatever. I'm talking about um, kind of switching courts. So here's an example. Often when I see recreational players play, one person's got the left side covered and the other person's got the right side covered. And you basically stay in your lane, right? If you're playing the left side, you stay on the left side, right side, right side. Now you do see a, uh, more and more people are stacking. That is when two players will set up on the same side of the court and then after a serve or return, one will move to the other side. That's a way of guaranteeing that you can play 
the game on the play the point on the side that you prefer. But if you're stacking in a predictable way, or if you're predictable in terms of which side you're going to play, that gives your opponents a lot of options. Let's say, for example, my opponents are picking on me. I've been missing a bunch of shots lately, or I'm the weakest player on my team. It makes sense that if I'm always playing on the right-hand side of the court, that's going to be a pretty easy target for my opponents. They always get the ball to me on the right side of the court. One way that my partner can help relieve that pressure that's on me is that she and I can switch sides sometimes. And not switch sides in a predictable way where your opponents are always going to know it. But for example, let's say that uh, we're serving. I'm serving from the right side, my partner, she's standing beside me on the left, and I hit that serve and I stand there, and just before my, re the, my opponent's return serve, presumably to me, just before they make contact, my partner and I quickly switch sides at the baseline. So now she's on the right and I'm on the left. That's one example of how teams can relieve the pressure when one person's being picked on, is that you have this switching that happens in the middle of the play. Another example happens when you're returning serve. Again, let's imagine I'm on the right side and my partner's on the left side and they've been really, my opponents have really been picking on me. But when I return serve and come running up to the net, if I'm predictably on the right-hand side of the court, it's very easy for them to get a third shot, whether it's a drop or a drive over towards me. But if I go running straight ahead, staying in my lane on the right-hand side, if just before my opponents hit their third shot, my partner and I then cross, that's a way to make it more likely that she gets the ball, which is good for us. One of the other things I saw that was interesting, and it's sort of a nuanced version of what I just described, is the uh, returner getting it, being at the baseline, getting ready to return serve, his partner up at the net, and what will happen is that returner would hit the return deep to the opponent's baseline, and the net player would not switch all the way to the right, but not stay on the left either. She would sort of go right to the center, sort of right at the tee. And the returner who's following up towards the net after would sort of go directly behind the player up at the tee, just for a split second. And what that means now is that the opponents don't have a clear sense of is that net player going to the right or to the left? Who's going to play left side? Who's going to play right side? And that's just one more way that teams are looking to get favorable results looking to get the ball hit to the player that they want it to be hit to, rather than giving their opponents more options. Now, of course, there's some risk when you do this kind of maneuvering. Uh, there's a chance that you and your partner get your signals crossed. You think that she's going left, she thinks she's going right, and you both end up going to the wrong place. Or if you are doing what I just described, where you're sort of creating this eye formation where one is behind the other, as uh, your returning servant coming in, there's a chance that a good drive that's hit down the line um, is out of reach of the player because you're both essentially covering the middle for a split second and no one's covering the sides. So there are risks, but uh, if you want to play high-level pickleball, you've got to be willing to take some risks in order to get some reward. And that was something I saw amongst the strongest players at the Nationals. In the beginning, we gave you unlimited power and ask just one thing in return. Just one thing. Just keep it in. What were we thinking? Mistakes were made. Lives were lost. But this time, just relax. We've got you covered. Selkirk. Power. Control. No compromise. A third thing that I saw at the Nationals that really stood out to me 
and I'm sorry that I have to report this, was that the refereeing was very uneven. Look, referees have an incredibly difficult job. They're out there. Very often they're not getting paid. They're out there on long days. They're, they're in the sun. It's hot. They've got a lot on their mind. They've got to keep the matches moving smoothly, uh, especially if they're playing with their refereeing uh, matches of less skilled players who might not always be clear on exactly what's going on. Referees have a really hard time. But one of the things that I saw, and I spent a lot of time watching a lot of matches, was the quality of refereeing was fairly uneven around the grounds. And in some ways, that's to be expected. If you have more experience as a referee, presumably you're going to be better at it. But I saw some pretty significant discrepancies. And without going into too much detail and without naming names, um, I saw multiple examples of referees getting the score wrong. I saw multiple examples of referees not being clear uh, who was serving. I saw multiple examples of referees being inconsistent with how they called the score. So one of, why does this matter? Well, one of the rules is that when you're the server, you must wait until the score is completely called before you start your service motion. And I saw referees who would call the score, for example, 3-2-1, uh, 3-2-2, 3-3-1. And then partway through the match, they would say, instead of saying 3-3-1, which has a predictable rhythm because they've been doing it the whole time, they would say something like 3 3 first server. Now, why does that matter? Well, because it is a fault if you start your serve before the referees finish talking. And what happens is servers start to get a particular rhythm. They get used to the cadence of the speech from the referee. And if all of a sudden the referee, instead of just saying one, chooses to say first server, that's a couple extra syllables right there. And yeah, it would be smart for the players to stop and wait and have a couple seconds before the score is called. But for a variety of different reasons, um, they don't. They have their routines. And so calling the score in an inconsistent way, the same referee throughout a game, I think is a problem. I saw other examples of uh, missed calls, whether that was a line call that uh, players made and referees didn't see it. And, you know, that's understandable. Um, sometimes their vision is blocked. Sometimes they're watching the, for non-volley zone f violations and they don't see if a ball lands on the baseline. Um, it happens and, you know, that's part of the game. But I saw some that were, um, that were so blatant, whether it was a kitchen violation after a volley was hit, whether it was an example of a ball that landed five feet out and yet the referee wasn't sure whether the ball was in or not, um, I can't speak as to exactly why that happened. Uh, I saw serves. Um, we have a Facebook Live uh, on our Facebook page. I saw serves that had a, a significant slice, like a high to low swing, creating a lot of backs, uh, backspin. And backspin itself isn't illegal. That's what you can hit with backspin. Except the thing is, if you're going to hit a low driving slice, backspinning shot, that requires a high to low swing path. And a serve has to be a low to high swing path. And so an experienced referee would see this incredible amount of backspin being hit hard and being hit low. And that should be a red flag that this is an illegal serve. Now, the referee didn't call it and the players didn't mention it because they were less skilled players and they didn't have the wherewithal. Um, anyway, I don't mean to harp too much on the referees, but I think that as the sport evolves and we're seeing um, players evolve, we're seeing coaching evolved, 
This is why we have Pickleball Coaching International, for example. We also need the refereeing to evolve so that it's at a particular standard. And not everyone has to be the same level of skill, but I do think that more work needs to be done to make sure the referees who are going out and refereeing matches for players of different levels can go out there and can be confident and competent when they do their job. And we'll leave it there. I had lots more observations from the 2018 USAPA Nationals. We're going to be talking about those over the course of the next few podcasts. Again, at Pickleball Problems, we'd love to hear about your problems and I can try to help solve them. So until next time, thanks for listening.